Hello, welcome to the Democracy Group and our end of the year best of 2023 series. From now until the end of the year, we'll be showcasing some of our network's favorite episodes from across our different shows. If you'd like to hear more episodes just like this, then head over to democracygroup.org. We hope that you have a wonderful end of your year and enjoy today's episode. One of the reasons why somebody like Mike Johnson is dangerous, because when you have elected Republicans who know better, elected Republicans who know the truth, but yet will go along with the efforts to undermine our republic, the efforts, frankly, that Donald Trump undertook to overturn the election, in order for the party and therefore the country to move away from Donald Trump, he's got to be defeated. But that means that people who know better have to recognize the stakes. They have to recognize that this isn't a game. This isn't politics as usual. We're dealing with somebody who, if he were elected to another term, would, would uh, most assuredly uh, begin the process very quickly of attempting to consolidate power and frankly, undo the institutions that protect our freedom. Welcome to Politics is Everything, the podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm Kara Ong Whaley. I'm Lauren Haran, a fourth year at UVA and an intern at the Center for Politics. I'm Gabriel Melton, a second year at UVA and an intern at the Center for Politics. And I'm Larry Sabato. And we are just absolutely thrilled to have our professor of practice at the Center for Politics here at the University of Virginia, Liz Cheney, who has uh, really been working hard the last couple of days, 14 classes, uh, about 1,500 students with tough questions, uh, and uh, she's done marvelously and has been very, very popular while giving honest and, and uh, tough answers. So we're thrilled to have her here, thrilled to have her uh, on the roster at the Center for Politics, and I hope that continues for a long time to come, though that is, of course, up to her. Uh, Liz, I'm, uh, I'm going to start out by mentioning for all of our podcast listeners the tremendous book that you have coming out on December the 5th, Oath and Honor. Uh, and the people who listen to this podcast are very much into politics and I think are into uh, what happened on January 6th and they followed intimately the details of the, of the January 6th committee. And I want to say to all of them, you'd better pre-order this. It's going to go to many reprintings and it will be on the New York Times bestseller list for a long time. So put in your order early. You all will want to read this. It isn't just a recitation from the newspapers of what has happened. Uh, and I'm going to ask you a little bit about that book, starting out with something that you've told us, uh, that uh, Mike Johnson, the new speaker, was somebody you got to know reasonably well. You two were elected the same year, 2016, and you had, at least at one point, adjoining offices. Um, what I know you can't reveal the details that are in your book, but... Uh, I do want you to tell us as much as you can about this new speaker and how you view him and how you view his character, because that's the most important thing of all. Well, uh, first of all, Larry, thank you for having me. Uh, uh, it's, it's such a privilege and an honor for me to be a professor of practice uh, with the Center for Politics and, and to be here again at UVA. Uh, it's wonderful every time uh, I'm able to spend time here with the students, especially. And, 
thank you for making that possible and for everything that you guys have done. I know you're celebrating your 25th year, uh, the, the Center for Politics, and you guys really are the gold standard. So um, thank you for that. And um, uh, I, I uh, do write in my book um, about uh, Mike Johnson and about uh, particularly um, his conduct in the aftermath of the 2020 election. Uh, Mike is somebody that I knew well, um, that you know we were elected together, as you said, uh, our offices were next to each other. Um, and you know, Mike is somebody who says that he's committed to defending the Constitution, um, but, but that's not what he did um, when, when we were all tested in the aftermath of the 2020 election. Um, you know, Mike, uh, in my experience, and, and I was very uh, deeply involved and engaged as the conference chair um, when Mike was doing things like convincing members of the conference to sign on to the amicus brief, um, it, he, he was acting in ways that he, he knew to be wrong. And um, I think that the, the country, um, uh, unfortunately, will come to see um, the, the measure of, of his character. Um, but, you know, in, in my view, uh, he was willing to set aside what he knew to be um, the, the rulings of the courts, um, the uh, requirements of the Constitution uh, in order uh, to uh, placate Donald Trump, in order to gain praise from Donald Trump uh, for political expedience. Uh, and so it's, uh, it, it's a concerning moment to have him be, uh, having been elected Speaker of the House. And, and as you said, I, before, obviously, I knew that he was going to be elected Speaker uh, I wrote at, at length about this uh, in, in my book, which will be out on December 5th. You know, just uh, today, uh, just a few minutes ago, actually, a new poll was released, a good poll, out of South Carolina showing Trump with 53% of the Republican, the likely Republican uh, primary vote. And there are two South Carolinians running, former two-term yeah. governor Nikki Haley and the current U.S. Senator Tim Scott. And uh, I think Nikki Haley was around 20% and Tim Scott was at 6%. It's, it's just incredible, I think, to many of us and certainly to you because you lived it and you, you uh, invested a lot and did uh, yeoman service uh, on the January 6th committee that people could be so blind to the, the well, problems that developed. And, and this is you know, one of the reasons why somebody like Mike Johnson is dangerous because when you have elected Republicans who know better, elected Republicans who know the truth, um, but yet will go along with um, the the efforts to undermine, um, you know, our, our our republic. The efforts, frankly, that Donald Trump undertook to overturn the election, when elected officials in the Republican Party minimize what he did, attempted to help him do what he did. Um, now attempt to suggest that somehow, you know, it really wasn't that big of a deal, um, continue to embrace him, it, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And um, in order for the party and therefore the country to move away from Donald Trump, he's got to be defeated. But that means that people who know better have to recognize the stakes. They have to recognize this isn't a game. This isn't politics as usual. You know, we're dealing with somebody who, if he were elected to another term, 
would, would uh, most assuredly uh, begin the process very quickly of um, attempting to consolidate power and, and frankly undo the institutions that protect our freedom. So this really matters and people who are elected Republicans have a particular obligation to speak the truth and too many of them are not doing that. You told me one time about it, I think it was a year and a half ago or so, that uh, many of your colleagues who were voting down the line for Trump after the election would say privately, this is ridiculous or this is nonsense, or they would criticize the way Trump was handling it. If you had to, to guess or put a number on it, just even a general range, what proportion of the Republican House caucus actually believed Trump's nonsense about the election? You could count probably certainly on two hands and maybe on one hand, uh, the members who really believed that the election had been stolen from Trump, who really believed that it had somehow been rigged. Um, you know, you have others who sort of tried to make this argument. Um, I don't know, you'd say like maybe in a more civilized fashion, they will say things like, well, you know, the rules were simply changed. And again, ignoring the fact that in, in you know, each of those cases, uh, the state legislatures uh, were the ones that had determined, all right, you know, who has the delegated responsibility and authority. And in each of those cases, when challenges were brought to the changes in the rules, with, with one exception in Pennsylvania that would not have changed the outcome of the election, the courts ruled against Donald Trump. The courts said no. In fact, the claims that you're making, um, you know, uh, do not bear out uh, your your uh, request for the kind of relief you want that we would throw out the votes of millions of, of people in, in these states. So um, I think now you have a combination of, you know, sort of the hardcore handful of members who really believe it, um, but but it has become much more acceptable now, unfortunately and, and dangerously, for people to say, well, you know, I'm not going to say it was rigged, but I'm still going to call into question whether Joe Biden, you know, is a legitimate president. And um, that, you know, we know what that language has caused. We know that it was that kind of lie that um, motivated and inspired people, uh, as Donald Trump did, you know, provoked them to, to attack the Capitol on January 6th. Um, there's been a lot of controversies about what the U.S.'s role should be when helping in Ukraine and Israel. What do you believe that the United States should be doing to help out these countries overseas? Well, it's it's a really important moment for um, the United States to, to be clear that we're going to maintain our commitments. Um, we uh, obviously ought to be providing support to Ukraine. This is the, the idea that we would somehow walk away from Ukraine uh, at this moment is wrong and misguided. Um, we also need to be supporting Israel. Um, when I've when I've watched over the last um, you know several weeks, even months now, but but in particular watching the decision by the uh, Speaker of the House uh, by the House Republicans to separate Ukraine aid from Israel aid and only put forward Israel aid, uh, I think that's a mistake. We obviously need to be supporting Israel, um, but but. There's this rising isolationist tendency, but even more than that, among many in my party, it seems that there's a, a willingness to support Putin. And you know, you begin to hear Republicans talking about America's role in the world, and 
they sound more like Jane Fonda than Ronald Reagan. And this idea that somehow America is agnostic as between Ukraine and Russia uh, is a fundamental misunderstanding of how um, the threat that freedom is under and how America's adversaries and those who would threaten us, those who believe in authoritarian rule, um, are very much working together. Our adversaries are allied against us. And if we don't maintain our commitment uh, for the people of Ukraine, it, it's going to have a domino effect. And countries will see our weakness and they will um, you know, be tempted to take steps elsewhere. I think the Chinese will watch what happens and make determinations about whether or not they should move now on Taiwan. Um, I think it has a huge impact on uh, Iran and whether the Iranians decide that, uh, you know, they need to be concerned that uh, America will continue to defend our allies. Uh, and certainly with respect to um, Israel, you know, America's commitment to Israel is, is and has to be unwavering. And uh, we ought to be moving immediately not playing political games as it seems the Republicans are in the House, but we ought to be moving immediately to get that aid to Israel uh, and to do it in a bipartisan manner. When we look at recent public opinion polls, people now identify Trump as conservative but do not view you as conservative. What are your thoughts about the policy and ideological shifts in the party? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating thing. You know, Donald Trump was a Democrat not that long ago. And um, and he really isn't conservative. Um, and even on sort of these, you know, national security issues where at, at some point people would sort of say, well, you know, he advocated for policies that might have been the kinds of things you would expect from a conservative. I mean, you know, his inclination and what he says now and, and began to say when he was president, certainly not conservative, certainly not from the Ronald Reagan School of Foreign Policy. You know, suggesting that America is going to pull out of NATO, um, expressing admiration for Putin and Kim Jong Un uh, and Hezbollah. I mean, that that is just you know uh, completely indefensible. So uh, he's he's not a conservative, um, and I would say the Republican Party has abandoned a lot of conservative principles and and put allegiance to him at the center and. And that that's, you know, um, it's not it's not healthy. Um, and when you get to a place where you're worried about um, whether or not the Republican speaker of the House of Representatives is is, you know, can be counted on to abide by uh, the Constitution to uphold the rule of law. That's a really serious and, and unprecedented moment in our history. And unfortunately, that's where we find ourselves today. You, you recently said that we should not be electing anyone who is not willing to say Donald Trump lost the election in 2020. And yet we have hundreds of members of Congress um, and senators. We have entire state delegations, uh, congressional delegations um, that believe in the so-called big lie. Um, and this, of course, has led to physical violence, including against local election administrators and, and other member, many public officials. Um, what, in your view, can be done to reverse the ways in which the big lie is is now just outright integrated into campaigns and being used as a fundraising tool to support those campaigns? I think that um, for the people who are 
advocating or who are espousing the big lie, who know that it's false, you know, uh, they have to lose their elections. And, um, you know, what you see, if, if you have somebody who knows that it's not true, but they're saying it for political purposes, it's clear that what matters to them is is political success. And so I think that, you know, that's where we have to think about alliances we haven't seen in this country in the in the recent past anyway, across party lines. Um, you know, in 2022, I endorsed uh, Democratic candidates, which, you know, I, I certainly had not ever done before, but they were running against election deniers. And um, you can't if you if you elect somebody, particularly as a governor or as a secretary of state, somebody who actually has authority over election certification and and they're out there saying, well, you know, we're going to we think we should ignore the results of the last election just because, you know, we, we don't think that they're right or we believe Donald Trump won and they ignore all the facts. They're telling you what they'll do in the future. And I think it's been a civics lesson for many of Americans to recognize and understand the role that these officials play in our presidential elections. Um it's also been an important thing to see the people who stood up, you know, people like Stephen Risher, for example, in Arizona, um, who, you know, had no no uh, reason um, to no no political benefit, certainly for him from saying, wait a minute, you know, we, we've recounted, uh, we've audited the outcome of the election in Arizona, um, you know, was accurate. And Joe Biden won Arizona. And he he has faced tremendous pushback from fellow Republicans for speaking the truth. I think um, making sure that we're rewarding people, incentivizing people like that, and banding together to, to make sure that people who speak the truth, um, you know, that we don't fall into accepting the big lie or accepting people that are willing to sort of cut corners about what happened in 2020 and talking about it um, in a way that that legitimizes the lie. I think that's the most dangerous political piece of this. Professor Cheney, we have a number of journalists who listen to this show. And I want to ask you, you know, after the 2016 election, there was a lot of hand wringing by the media about how they had covered the presidential election. Um, and yet, there doesn't seem to be any lessons learned as we're looking already at coverage of the 2024 election. What is the responsibility of journalists and the news media in terms of their coverage, in, in terms of their campaign and election coverage? I think we've had a real uh, lesson in um, that, you know, what's what's not rejected um, becomes acceptable. And we saw it begin when I, I think it was CNN, frankly, did the first kind of interview with Donald Trump where they treated him as just you know, a normal presidential candidate as though he hadn't attempted to seize power and, you know, overturn the last election. And I think that as journalists cover this race, it's really important for them, um, you know, to to guard against that. And, and it can be very difficult because if everybody else is treating Donald Trump like he's just, you know, another candidate in the horse race, then it becomes tough not to do that. But I think the journalists have a real responsibility to reflect the fact that, you know, he didn't just lose the election. Um, you know, he lost the election and then he tried to steal it. And um, the the danger that he poses is uh, the potential that we're gonna find ourselves faced with the danger of a second Trump term, 
with the destruction of a second Trump term is enhanced if reporters treat him as though he didn't do those things. And um, and I think that's that to me is one of the most important things as they cover this race that has to be at the forefront of, of the coverage. Professor Cheney, you recently stated that you've not ruled out a presidential bid in 2024, but more broadly, do you see yourself running for office again in the near future? Um, I, I, I haven't ruled it out. Um, I haven't made a decision about it yet. You know, I would hate to say I'll never run for office again, because um, I just don't think you know, you know, nobody knows exactly how things will turn out. Um, and and I, I really believe in um, America's political system. And uh, right now my focus has been on encouraging really good people to get in races and supporting those people, whether they're Republicans or Democrats. Um, and, you know, I think we've all seen the impact that individual elected officials have and why it matters so much that people are willing to participate in our system. You know, one of the really unfortunate legacies of this this Trump era, you know, one of the many unfortunate legacies has been the numbers of good people who, you know, say sort of I'm I'm done. I don't I don't want any part of this. And I understand it, you know, we're suddenly faced with violent threats against us and our families. Um, and, you know, the when you think about, I, I had a moment when I was walking through the Denver airport um, back in sort of mid 2021, and, and I had uh, police protection. And walking through the airport, and, and it occurred to me suddenly, you know, I have to have security because of a threat that's being provoked by the former president of the United States. I mean, that uh, that's, again, totally an un-American concept, something that, you know, we haven't seen. It's hard for me to think of when we might have seen that in our history. Um, and and I, I think that um, those kinds of things drive good people away. And there's really nothing more important that people could be engaged in than helping to get the policy right for our country. So, um, so I, I, I don't rule out, you know, running for office myself at some point, and, and I haven't decided yet, you know, what 2024 looks like, except I do know the most important thing is making sure Donald Trump's not elected again. Given all the challenges facing our democracy, are there any reforms to political insti institutions that you see as promising? Um, you know, when we were working on the select committee, one of the things we did was um, uh, work on legislation and eventually we passed reform to the Electoral Count Act. Um, now, it's really important to make clear that what Donald Trump did was illegal under the Electoral Count Act as it existed in 2020. Um, but we, as well as being unconstitutional, uh, but what we wanted to do was look at, you know, what are some of the other challenges we could face in the future and work to provide protections against those, um, you know, thinking about what would happen if a governor or a secretary of state refused to certify legitimate votes um, or refused to, to submit those to Congress. So there there are different pieces of legislation that we've we've, you know, managed to work on and, and we're able to get that one passed. I think though that one of the things that is very clear is if you have a president who is going to blow through the guardrails of our democracy, then, you know, it doesn't matter how strong those guardrails are or 
um, you know, how strong the legislative framework is um, if you elect somebody with the character of Donald Trump. And so I think the most important thing we need to do is think about the character of the people we're electing and, and elect good people who, you know, you know, are going to do their duty. There's so many things I want to ask you, but you'll be back for many additional visits. I, from a personal perspective, I was fascinated with what you said about the Denver airport and having security and, you know, you have to have it everywhere. And this, this is un-American. It really is. During Watergate, uh, there was no need for that. Uh, there was a great deal of public debate even during Johnson's administration toward the end or a year and a half before it ended because he was almost a prisoner of the White House. He couldn't travel. And the 1960s or a piece of it may be the closest analogy we have to what we've been experiencing under Trump and, and post-Trump administration controversy. Do you see any way, since we need at least two parties, you, you can't have a democracy without two parties, how do you see that alternative emerging? Because the current Republican Party, as you said many times, does not fulfill its role as the alternative party. So what do we do? We can't vote for Democrats all the time. Sorry, Democrats. We can't, we can't. It would, it would encourage corruption and arrogance. What do we do? I, I think it goes back to those of us who re realize and recognize the threat cannot just bury our head in the sand or cannot say, you know what, politics is so messy and, and frankly dangerous that I don't want to be involved anymore. I'm going to look to somebody else to do it. I think that every American has to realize, you know, the threat of what you're saying and, um, and, and recognize that um, if, if we simply, you know, turn away and, and accept things. And, and look, we've seen this phenomenon happening, which is things we could not ever have imagined all of a sudden people sort of, you know, say, oh, right, that just comes with the territory or that's just Trump. I mean, when, when you had members of the House receiving threats of violence to their families and themselves because they were voting against Jim Jordan for speaker. And then when those members, you know, they went and had a meeting with Jim Jordan in which they said to him, one of them who was in the meeting told me this, they said, said, look, we're getting death threats because we're voting against you. And uh, Warren Davidson, who's a Jim Jordan supporter from Ohio also, apparently responded, well, that's not Jim Jordan's fault you're getting those threats. That's your fault for voting against Jim Jordan. Now, that kind of response to the threat of political violence is completely unacceptable. And, um, you know, people may not want to hear that. They may not want to have to deal with it. Um, they may be disgusted by our politics today. But but the only way through this, the only way out of it is for good people to refuse to turn away and and for all of us to say, wait a minute, you know, millions of people haven't sacrificed everything they've sacrificed over the course of our nation's history so that, you know, we could descend into, um, you know, some sort of authoritarian regime where political violence determines who rules and, and it, it imposes an obligation on all of us. I I think that we... Um, I, I do believe in the end we'll come through this, that we'll reject this cult of personality. Um, but I, I don't, I'm, you know, obviously I don't have any illusions that it will be easy, uh, but it's, it's 
fundamentally important if we want to make sure our kids grow up in freedom. And really what you're calling for is renewed patriotism. You know, as the old song goes, freedom isn't free. You have to pay a price. You have to sacrifice. And sometimes that means putting yourself in danger. Goodness knows generations and generations of Americans did that when military service was mandatory, at least for, for men. Maybe that was the original mistake, doing away with, with the draft, but that's another subject for another day. And patriotism is what I think of when I think of your title, Oath and Honor, for your new book being released December 5th. Maybe it can help to generate a wave of patriotism as people realize that their obligation is part of the solution to the problems that we've been talking about. So, well, th thank you for that, and and I, I I do think it's 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 a story that that Americans deserve to know. Um, sort of the the what happened when our democracy threatened to unravel and began to unravel from the inside, and and how it happened, um, and and certainly you know what we need to do to come out of it again. So. Um, so I appreciate the opportunity to be here and to, to, to teach and to talk to you about all of these important issues that you've been so engaged in. And, and I also want to say the civic education piece of it, which I know uh, the Center for Politics and you in particular have devoted so much time to, you know, that's also a huge part of the solution is making sure that, that you know, all Americans fundamentally understand what it takes to keep keep our freedom safe and and to maintain the republic. So thank you for everything you've done in that regard as well. Well, it's a particular honor to be thanked by you, Professor Cheney, who's really put yourself on the line and done the right thing when all the pressure was in the other direction. It was not easy, I'm sure, for a single day to do what you did. So we all have a debt of gratitude to you. We really do. And uh, I look forward to discussing that with you when the book comes out and when we all have a chance to have read it before we <laughs> ask you follow-up questions. So I'll thank you so much for being so much. being with us. We look forward to the book signing here, which will be your next visit. Wonderful. Good. Exactly. Thank you guys. Listeners, you can order a copy of Oath and Honor, Professor Cheney's first-hand account from inside the halls of Congress as Donald Trump and his enablers betrayed the American people and the Constitution, which led to the violent attack of our Capitol on January 6, 2021. The link is in the episode notes. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara Ong Whitley. You can learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. You can also engage with us on social media at center number four politics. We welcome your suggestions and questions for future episodes. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.